What are you like when nobody's around? I mean, how do you behave when you are sure that nobody else is watching? Everybody here, we, we all know how to put our best foot forward when we're in a crowd. When we're at a public event and hundreds of eyes are turned our direction, everybody here knows how to dress up and make yourself look good. But who are you when nobody's looking? Is there a difference between your public life and your private life? John Rockefeller was always concerned about this. He was the first billionaire in America. And so because of his vast wealth, he was always kind of leery when somebody showed up at the office to talk to him. Okay, <laughs> what do you really want? In fact, many times after he'd finished negotiations with a group of business leaders, he would walk those, here he was in this high-rise building in New York City, he would walk those group of businessmen out to the elevator to say goodbye. And what his visitors never noticed, uh, because Mr. Rockefeller was so busy talking to them, was standing off to the side was this innocent-looking bystander who would slip into that crowded elevator, follow those group of men down to the ground floor, follow them out the front door and across the street. And then a few minutes later, he would return to the building and give Mr. Rockefeller a detailed report of everything those men said in that elevator when they thought their conversation was a secret. Because John Rockefeller understood what you say in private reveals the way you actually feel. What do you like behind closed doors? What do you like when you're all alone in the house and you know for sure that nobody else is ever going to see or know anything you've done? Thousands of years ago, Plato talked about the same thing, the Greek philosopher. He wrote a story about a shepherd who discovers this magic ring. You know, you twist it one way, you become invisible. You twist it the other way, and suddenly you reappear. He put this story in a book called The Republic. And the whole story is centered around what happened to the shepherd and what happened to his character now that he's got this magic ring. Now he's got this power. I mean, he knows he can go anywhere and do anything he wants, and no one else is ever going to be aware of what he's been up to. I mean, at any moment, he can make himself invisible and know he's never going to get caught. And the whole point of the story, according to Plato, is you never really know what another person is like on the inside until you put them in a place where they think nobody else is watching. So, what do you like, really like, in the private moments of your life? Here's the reason why I'm emphasizing this. Today, we're going to take a look at a young man named Elisha on the day, the very day, when God calls him to be a prophet. But this calling comes out of the blue. Elisha's not expecting this. I mean, he's not at a career fair looking for a new job, you know, all dressed up, resume in hand, hoping to make a good impression in this interview. No. He's not sitting in a study with a book in his hand. He's not down on his knees praying and meditating about taking a new direction in his life. No. On this day, when God calls Elisha to be a prophet, he's out here plowing a field. He's got his hands full running a family farm. He's not expecting anything out of the ordinary. In other words, the first, the first time that we see him, we, get a, we catch him at a private moment. We get a chance to see what this young, land, young man is actually like on the inside. We get a chance to see the true nature of his heart. Here's another reason why I find this particular scripture so fascinating and so helpful. Have you ever wondered, what would I do if I were suddenly put under pressure, under great pressure to lie? You know, one day the boss shows up and says, you lie to the IRS or you're going to lose your job. And as he's standing over your desk staring at you, immediately you can feel the repercussions. Man, if I don't go along with him, I lose this job, I lose all that income, I lose all those benefits, that's going to be devastating for me and my family. And at that moment when the pressure is on, do you fold, do you cave in, do you do what is wrong, or do you stand tall and speak the truth? Or say you're traveling overseas, you're going to another country, it's a vacation. And while you're in this foreign land one afternoon, you're out here shopping, when all of a sudden you're taken hostage by a group of terrorists. And now you're threatened with death if you do not deny your faith. 
At that moment when your very life is on the line, do you fold, do you compromise and deny the faith, or do you remain steadfast in your commitment to the Lord? You ever wondered about those kind of things? You know, in the moment of truth, will I be a coward or will I be a hero? Will I keep my integrity or will I sell out, will I sell out to the pressure? And a lot of people say, hey, David, nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows what you're going to do until you're actually in the situation itself. Until the crisis occurs, you're, nobody knows for sure how you're going to react. And maybe you're right. But you know what? Jesus had a different answer. Do you remember what he said in Luke chapter 16? Jesus said, before the test ever comes, before the crisis ever occurs, you can already know ahead of time if you're going to remain faithful, if you would actually stand up for your convictions. And here's how you tell. Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said, he who is faithful in a very little will also be faithful in much. But he who is dishonest in a very little will also be dishonest with much. See, somebody who's made a habit in their daily life of making excuses, evading responsibility, always looking for the easy way out, and they're not going to suddenly become this tower of strength and virtue when a calamity hits. The crisis doesn't change us. It only reveals what is already there. When the adrenaline begins to flow, it simply brings out what's already there in your heart. So if you've always been honest and told the truth, you're not going to suddenly become a liar and a cheat when the pressure is put on. But on the other hand, if you've been this people pleaser, hey, don't rock the boat, go along with the flow. Let's keep everybody in the crowd happy. If you've been that kind of person, when the moment of truth arrives, you feel that stress, it's going to bring out what's already in your heart. You're going to want to duck and run, dodge the desk, look for a way of escape. In other words, the, the best way to do great things for God is to begin to do the small things well. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Elijah. I mean, God, one of the reasons why God knows ahead of time this farm boy is going to become a great prophet is because he's already proved it in his everyday routine. Every day, in his everyday activities, you can already see this young man living out his faith. You can see it in the way he loves his family. You can see it in the way he manages his farm. You can see it in the way he helps his neighbors. And because this young man has always been faithful in the little things of life, God knows ahead of time he's going to be faithful in the bigger things too. Now watch how that's brought out in our scripture. 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll start with verse 19. So Elijah, this is the older man, the prophet, he went from there. Where's there? Well, for 40 days, 40 nights, he's been at Mount Sinai with this encounter with God. And part of what God's doing here is he's mapping out a strategy for his future ministry. And one of the things that God wants him to be sure to do is make disciples of others. Elijah, you've got to make sure before you come to the end of your days, you've got somebody trained and equipped, ready to take your place. And God tells them ahead of time who this somebody's going to be. It's going to be this young man named Elisha, the guy with the S in the middle of his name. Well, Elijah's never met him before. So God tells him back in verse 16 where, he's, where he lives. He's working on a farm near the Jordan River, about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. So Elijah leaves this mountain way down here in Saudi Arabia. He comes all the way here to Israel, and sure enough, he finds the young man exactly where God said he would be. And on this day, what is he doing? He's out here plowing in a field. So here's this young man, Elisha. He has no idea right now. He's out here all by himself. He has no idea right now. He's being watched. And as Elijah stands over here and watches this young man, Elisha, already he can tell certain things about him. He's busy. He's responsible. And watch the way he plows that field. Man, he does his job well. And with all the other people who are working on his farm, he can tell he has put them in a position where they can succeed too. I mean already from a distance. The first moment he spots this young man, he can tell a lot of positive things about him. And then he notices this. And it says, when he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
he was plowing 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, you've got to keep in mind, in ancient Israel, most of the farms are really small. I mean, you're lucky if you've got one pair of oxen and a single plow. But here's Elisha. He's not only driving a tractor. He's got 11 other guys driving tractors for him, too. Here's all these animals, all this equipment. All these employees have been hired to operate this equipment. And here's this young man. And a good guess is he's somewhere between the age of 20 to 25. And here he is already overseeing this entire operation. This is a huge farm. And he's got this farm up and going at a time when the Bible's already told us, 1 Kings chapter 17, they've just been through a three and a half year drought, a devastating drought. And to have a farm like this of this size and it's up and flourishing, what does that tell you about this young man and his management skills? This guy is good at what he does. And he's got a great thing going here. Why would he ever want to leave this? Well, that's where we begin to learn something about this young man's heart. You see, he's all in for God. If that means serving God in a farm, then I'm going to be the very best farmer I can be. If that means serving God as a prophet, then I'm going to be the very best prophet I can be. Wherever God wants me to be, I'm all in. So now Elijah begins to approach him to make his presence known. Last part of verse 19, Elijah went up to him and he threw his coat around him. Now, this is not just any kind of coat that Elijah is wearing. It's a very distinctive garment. In fact, nobody else in the nation of Israel wears a garment like this. This is a garment that's going to make him stand out, set him apart. It's going to be a garment that reminds everybody else the unique, of the unique way in which he, Elijah, serves God. He serves God as a prophet. So when he takes off this distinctive garment and he now wraps it around the shoulders of this young man, it's, it's a symbolic way of saying, are you ready to wear this responsibility? Are you ready to learn how to be a prophet? And immediately, Elisha recognizes the significance of this action. Because as he puts on the mantle, as he begins to wear this coat, he immediately takes his hands off the plow, and he pauses for a moment to consider what all this means. And then, Elijah starts walking on down the road. Again, another symbolic action. It's a way of telling this young man, Elisha, listen, if you're going to respond to this, you're not just going to become a prophet overnight. No, you've got to prepare yourself for this awesome responsibility. You need to do an internship. You need to do some training. You need to learn from somebody who's already been down this particular road. Elisha, are you ready to follow in the footsteps of Elijah? So here's this young man wearing this coat, watching Elijah walk down the road, and as he considers the call of God and what all it's going to mean for his life, he now prepares to make his response. Watch what he does. Verse 20, then Elisha, he left the oxen. There's no hesitation here. And he ran. He ran. I mean, the drive, the ambition, the passion. He's excited about this. He is eager to say yes to the call of God. He ran after Elijah. And then he makes this request, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this because a lot of people immediately think of that New Testament scripture, Luke chapter 9. You remember that afternoon when a young man comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I want to follow you, but can I first go back home and say goodbye to my family? And Jesus is not pleased. He rebukes the young man. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And immediately people will draw a parallel between what we read there in Luke 9 and 1 Kings chapter 19, like the response in both situations is the same. I don't think so. 
Yes, in Luke chapter 9, we've got a young man here who's kind of wavering. Lord, I love you, but uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to make that full-time commitment yet. Uh, can I delay the decision? I want to follow you someday, but, but not yet. Can I just go back home for a while? I really like being home with my family, and maybe after I've been here for a while, we could later on down the road talk about this and see when's the right time to do this, but, but, but I'll do it. I'm not ready yet to be that full-time, fully devoted follower of yours. The Lord's not pleased, but here. There's no hesitancy. The only reason Elisha is asking for this permission to go back and see his parents is to announce a decision he's already made. And I want them to know where God is calling me. And I want them to be a part of this too. Look at how the text confirms this. Elijah said, yeah, yeah, go back and let them know. Let them know what I have done for you, what it means, what it signifies to be a prophet of God, so they can sign on, so family, friends, they can sign on, so they can support you in this new venture that God has called you to. So Elijah left him for a short period of time. Elijah left him, and he went back. He took his yoke of oxen. Now watch this. He took his yoke of oxen, his yoke, his oxen, and he slaughters them. This is radical. In Old Testament times, generally, Old Testament times, ancient Israel, most people only got a chance to eat meat three times a year. When you came down to the temple in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost in the summer, for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, for the Passover in the spring, it's about the only chance you ever had to eat meat. I mean, that, just a, that was a special treat. But to have meat now, on this ordinary day, and to have it in such abundance where Elisha takes two full-grown oxen and slaughters them and all the barbecue that's going to supply... Man, I tell you, everybody in this town is going to be talking about this moment for the rest of their days. Man, do you remember that day when Elisha cooked all that meat for us? Wow, that was, what a feast. I've never had a feast like that before. Yeah, and do you remember why he did it? What we were celebrating that day? How God had called him to be a prophet. I mean, this is a moment nobody's ever going to forget. And then, to make sure he's got a fire big enough to cook all this meat, look at what he does. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And obviously, they ate with great joy. Do you understand what Elisha's doing? He's burning the bridges. There's no going back. Yes, at one point in my life, I was called by God to be a farmer, and that's a very noble calling. Always has been, always will be. But in this particular situation, I have now been called by God to serve him as a prophet, and I want you to celebrate this new turn in my life. So, Elisha sets out, obviously, in a very determined way to follow Elijah and knowing, knowing that for the next couple of years, here he is, he's been the CEO of this large farming operation. Now, all of a sudden, here he is back at the bottom of the totem pole. He's a rookie. He's a rank amateur. Man, I don't know a thing about what it means to be a prophet. So for the next couple of years, he's going to be serving Elijah and learning from him. Now, when you step back from this and you take time to really think about this, you know what you realize? Elisha didn't have to kill the oxen. Elisha didn't have to burn the plow to be able to follow Elijah. God didn't require this. There was no command from the older man, Elijah himself. This idea of cashing in your savings account and having this giant party, this is all Elisha's idea. So what is he doing? He's making a statement, a statement of faith. Listen, I want everybody in my town, everybody knows me, family, friends. I want you to know, yes, when I was a boy, it was clear, God called me to be a farmer. And you watch this every day from early in the morning till late at night. I was out there in the field working hard for him. I gave God everything I've got. But now that God has called me to be a prophet, I want you to know I'm going to serve him the same way, with the same diligence, with the same energy, with the same kind of commitment. 
And just to make sure there's nothing here to tug at my heart and pull me back to what I once used to do, today I am officially cutting all ties to the past so that from this moment on I have to fully, totally rely upon the grace of God to provide for me. You see, this is Elisha's way of declaring his allegiance to God. Now, there are other ways to do that too. Ellen Vaughn tells about a a friend of hers, a man who has a serious addiction to alcohol. And he knows that any day he could easily slip back into that old life. So to make sure that doesn't happen, he has this habit, this daily discipline. Every night before he goes to bed, he takes off his glasses. And rather than just set them on the nightstand, he will toss them way underneath the bed. So that the first thing the next morning when he gets up, because he can't see a thing without his glasses, first thing when he gets up, the first thing he has to do is he has to literally get down on his hands and knees, reach way underneath that bed and retrieve the glasses. And once he retrieves the glasses, he just pauses for a moment while he's down there on his hands and knees and he prays, God, you know and I know I've been in this position many times before because of my slavery to alcohol. God, you know and I know I'll be here again if you do not deliver me from this evil. So to God, for today, for this entire day, the only way I'm going to make it safely through is if I depend totally upon you. Is that not similar to the testimony the Apostle Paul gave? You remember towards the end of his life, he writes this letter to Timothy, and, and, and he says, There's a, this is a trustworthy saying, and it's worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is a remarkable confession, and the reason it's remarkable is because when Paul makes a statement, he's been a Christian for 35 years. For 35 years, he's been doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. In fact, some people would say he's the greatest Christian that's ever lived, and nobody would dispute that. But here's this great Christian at the end of his life testifying that of all the sinners, Jesus came to this world to say, I am, not I was, I am the worst. Literally, every day I am down on my hands and knees to once again confess my need for God. In spite of all the remarkable things that he has done in the past, I'm not going to make it through this next day unless I have a fresh outpouring of his mercy upon my life. I cannot lean upon the past. Every day I must once again lean fully and totally upon God. I think that's the kind of statement of faith that Elisha's making in this scripture. 1866, Jesse James. Heard of him? 1866, Jesse James was baptized. He'd just come out of the army serving in the Civil War, and so he became a member of the Mount Olive Baptist Church there in this little town of Kearney, Missouri. Some people were not surprised by this. They thought, huh, you know, I've been around him a couple times. Seems like a nice guy, kind of quiet, doesn't say a lot. But you remember his dad, his biological father? He was a preacher, so yeah, I think that decision makes sense. But other people were suspicious. I don't know. Is the conversion real? Here's why they were suspicious. There'd just been a bank robbery in the neighboring town of Liberty, Missouri. And rumors had it that Jesse James and his brother Frank had been involved. $60,000 taken out of the vault. In fact, according to the rumors, Jesse had been the mastermind behind the crime. Then the next year, 1867, there was another bank robbery in another nearby town, Richmond, Missouri, and this time several people were shot and killed. The next year, when everybody knew that Jesse James was down in the state of Kentucky visiting from some, fr some friends, 
There just happened to be a, a bank robbery in the town where he was staying, Russellville, Kentucky. Hmm, I wonder who was behind that. I mean, it seems like everywhere Jesse goes, the local bank ends up losing all its money. So, in the summer of 1869, the leaders of the Mount Olive Baptist Church called a meeting to talk about Jesse James. Don't you think it's time we take his name off the books? Pretty obvious he's not living a Christian life. Many people in the church were scared. Oh, I don't know. Boy, if we excommunicate him, he might get mad. He might burn down the church building. I don't know if we ought to do that. So finally they decided, let's get two of our deacons to go make a call. Send him off to his mother's farmhouse because everybody in town knew that's where Jesse was hiding. Go to the farmhouse. Talk to this young man. See if you can raise him with him. Well, before they got a chance to make the call, the very next Sunday morning, Jesse James came to church. And at the end of the service, he came forward and he said, I want you to take my name off the membership roll. I am no longer worthy to be a part of this congregation. And he left, and they never saw him again. And for the next 12 years, he carried on robbing trains, robbing banks, becoming the most famous outlaw in the entire country. And for the next 12 years, the members of that Mount Olive Baptist Church kept wondering, was he ever, was he ever a true believer in the Lord? Or was he just playing games with us? That question never came to mind when people talked about this young man, Elisha. I mean, long before the other prophet showed up to call him to leave the farm, everybody in his hometown would tell you, we know where his heart is. Just watch. Watch how he plows that field. Watch how he cares for his animals. Watch how he treats his employees. Watch how he loves his family. Watch how he, he, he helps his neighbors. I mean, it's obvious this young man loves the Lord. And because he'd always been faithful in the little things of life, God knew when he called him to this bigger nationwide ministry of being a prophet that Elisha was going to be faithful with much as well. Is your allegiance to God clear to the people around you? And clear not just because of what they see here on a Sunday morning. Is it clear to others that you love Jesus because of what they see in your marriage? because of what they see in your relationship with your children, because of how they see you behave at work? Is it clear, even in the little things of life, that Jesus really is Lord of my life? Let's pray. God, you have always made your allegiance to us so clear, and especially at the cross. May we never forget all that you have done for us. And may we never doubt the awesome love that you have for us. But God, today, part of the reason we're here is because we want to declare our allegiance to you. God, we want it to be clear to everybody around us in our homes, our neighborhoods, school, work, wherever we're at. We want it to be clear Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our Lord. And we have committed ourselves to following him. And God, we want to be faithful in following, not just in the big moments of life, but in the little things too. But God, that's why we're praying. We need your help to do that. So God, today, take our hearts, seal this commitment. God, let us be filled and controlled by your Holy Spirit. And every day, may he empower, may he enable us to be faithful in living for Jesus. And God, we ask for this help. In Jesus' name, amen.